Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Tonight, Tom Furland is back. Tom, thanks for taking time out of your night. Thanks for having me, Dave. Um, what we're going to talk about tonight is risks and dependencies in an organization. And, and one of the things a lot of companies try to do when they're going through a transformation is they're under, they are operating this model where everything has to go all the way. And that's not always yep. the best option for everybody. Um, if you listen to the podcast in the past, you've heard Mike and I talk about the fat guy on the couch and that wants to run a marathon. And maybe there's parts of the company that can run the marathon, but maybe there's parts of the company that don't need to run the marathon. Is that right? Is yeah, that absolutely. To say it? Absolutely. So can you give a little bit of background with the, I know you're working on a project where, where this is sort of the case right now. Can you explain what's going on and why there might be parts of the organization that don't have to make the come, you know, go all the way to base camp five. Yeah. So when we, when we look at shaping our expeditions within an organization, I mean, obviously we want to help the organization transform as much as possible to be beneficial to them. But at the end of the day, it's about um, where, to what extent do we want to transform them? Where's the business case for that? So for, you know, products that are market drivers and market differentiators where there's a big need to be able to respond in the, the quickest manner possible and you have changing market demands and emerging requirements, um, you need to be able to, you know, deploy with the push of a button and something like that. Yeah, going to Basecamp 5 makes sense. But um, when you're talking about these large legacy companies, um, a lot of times they are going to have a very hard time getting there and it's going to take a lot of time and money to get them to the point where they could do that. And that doesn't always make sense from an ROI standpoint, especially when you're talking about groups of products within the organization that um, maybe aren't market differentiators, maybe are internal to the company, maybe are commercial off-the-shelf products that are adapted to a specific company need. Um, cases like this, when we start shaping expeditions, we start to look at um, is there really a benefit to going beyond um, or to, to fully decoupling going to base camp three or beyond, or do we simply want to get them to a place where they can start to be predictable, where they can start to optimize their flow of value through the system of delivery and work with what they have and be able to respond along with the rest of the company um, in, in a more predictable and a more rapid fashion, but not to the extent where, you know, you need to go and do multiple daily deployments or anything like that with, um, you know, full DevSecOps or, or uh, <clears throat> full automation. Okay. You know, so you then I want to, yeah, good. You go ahead. Yeah, you, you do something like that and the, the, the cost really skyrocket, but you do something, you, you can do something with a, a very low cost, but a very high return just by getting a, a, a product group and a, the teams that operate on that product group predictable and getting them to optimize their value flow with very little technology work. Okay, so I wanna to try to say this back and make sure that I have it straight in my head. So in an organization, there might be products they have that, you know, that serve the public, and these are things that have to be able to be very agile. Like we've gotta be able to constantly respond to changes in the market, new things that we learn, new competitors that enter the marketplace. Um, and those are parts of an organization that we might want to take all the way to a model that is as close to lean startup as we can get full on innovation, constantly responding, deploying all the time. Um, but there's other parts of the organization. You, you know, mentioned internal products. So maybe we're, our group is building something for another department in the company. This isn't something that's going to have to constantly be able to be released and changing. 
and and the pain and the struggle and the cost of getting all the way to that you know completely innovative state might not be worth the squeeze and it might just cause complications is that right yeah you got it okay so I, really quick, I just want to go over some of the leading agile lingo for the folks that are listening if they're not familiar with the podcast. So when we talk about expeditions, how would you explain, you know, like, what's a quick ex- explanation of what an expedition is? So an, expedi- or an expedition is um, basically a journey to get to a new target state. So it's okay. basically like doing a PDCA cycle where we go through and we achieve a set of outcomes throughout the course of that expedition for um, some true business benefits. Okay. And different parts of the organization might go on different expeditions and and have a different end goal or different outcome they're looking for. Correct. Yep. Yep. And that's, that is tailored to the expert or tailored to that part of the organization based on the product and um, the level of uh, complexity, the level of uh, dependencies and cohesion that those products have within that space and how difficult it's going to be to, um, get them to higher levels of agility and higher levels of uh, ability to respond to change. Okay. And, and so for folks that are listening, when we talk about an expedition at Leading Agile, we break that up into stages and we've um, defined five different base camps, we call them. Basically, um, places where we have certain expectations, like when you get to this place, then we would call this base camp one or two or three or four or five. Um, and you, you mentioned a difference between, you know, base camp two and base camp three. So could you explain real quick what each of those would be? So when you get to base camp two, what we're really talking about is you've achieved base camp one, which is predictability that you have, um, you can make and meet commitments and deliver, um, in a pretty consistent fashion. You got stable teams. Um, yep. Iteration over iteration or throughout your Kanban cycle, whatever you, whatever, uh, the case may be and your teams are formed stable, um, they're operating uh, with an agile methodology. Okay. Um, they understand it. And then you get to base camp two, it builds off base camp one, and you start talking at the beginning of base camp two about how do you optimize the flow of value by scheduling items to completion, optimizing your, um, your work item sizes, um, and with the goal of ultimately having smaller batch sizes and smaller deliveries. Um, and right sizing. Okay. And then uh, ultimately talking about how do we make economic trade offs and compare items in a constrained system. So if you have um, a limited ability and amount of time to get things done, how do you know whether you're working on the most important thing or not? Okay. So, and then how is that different from Basecamp 3? So Basecamp 3, Basecamp, at the tail end of Basecamp 2, you start talking about how do we identify waste in our system and how do we start to lean out our internal and our external value streams within the products. Okay. And then at the very tail end of that, we start to identify legacy technical debt and develop a plan to remediate that and identify our dependencies. So that when we go into Basecamp 3, um, if we're going to Basecamp 3 or beyond, we can actually decouple. So base camp three is really where the, the technical nitty gritty of this gets um, really heavy, where you start to actually go in and um, refactor your system to remove a lot of these um, technical dependencies that you have. And so you can start doing more of a CICD um, okay. rather than, than uh, some of the manual processes you might have in earlier base camps. 
So I get this in class all the time. People, they want to do this stuff, but they're like, well, we can't release unless these five other systems are also lockstep with us because we're all so tied together and so deeply intertwined that none of us can change anything without impacting everybody else. And we're talking, when you say decoupling, you're talking about refactoring the way things are architected in the organization or the way things are just set up in general so that one piece can be updated and deployed without tearing down the rest of the house, right? Yep. You're talking about doing, you know, more of your push button deployments with um, CICD environments where you've got automated testing um, and the ability to rapidly deploy and know whether or not you broke something. Um, you're getting to a point where um, things are starting to approach more of that lower right quadrant, as we call it, a leading agile. We're, we're starting to value less of the predictability and more um, the ability to respond to change. And we're starting okay. to, our requirements are starting to move more in a, um, an emergent fashion rather than a convergent fashion. Okay. And, and every step of the way, we want to be able to realize a business value from going through this change. It's not right. just making change for the sake of saying we're super agile because that's right. a point to that. Right. Okay. Yeah, because at the end of the day, companies are not, they're not paying to be agile in the sense that they're not, you know, paying for, they, they don't really care if you're doing safe or doing less or bad or, or scrum or what have you, what they're paying for is what that's going to get them in terms of business benefits. And if the okay. benefits aren't high enough to offset the cost of that investment to get to that point, they don't want to do it. Okay. So, so for some internal system where we still have those dependencies on other internal systems, maybe it's not possible to make a strong case for this is why we should actually decouple. Maybe we should leave some of that stuff the way it is because it's just easier right now for us to leave it that way. And there's not enough of a like bang for going through the struggle of changing it. Right. Yeah. And for these large legacy organizations that are some of the later adopters to the agile train, um, you know, that may be the case with even the majority of the products within their organization. They may okay. not have a case to take those um, beyond Basecamp 2. And we're seeing a lot of that um, in the engagement I'm on right now. I mean, it's a large uh, you know, Fortune 5 company, but they're, um, they're, the majority of their expeditions are not going to go to Basecamp 3 or beyond. The majority of them are going to stay at Basecamp 2 or below because it just doesn't make sense to take the entire organization to Basecamp 3, 4, or 5 when what they're really looking for is how do we optimize value flow and can we get predictable because they're so used to operating in that upper left quadrant, that chaotic quadrant. Okay. So, so in a minute, I'm going to ask you to talk about the, the gig that you're working on now. But before we go there, without making it sound like a sales pitch, can you go back to the thing you said a few minutes ago um, where part of the leading agile approach is, is different than a lot of other organizations because of the way that we approach transformation and what you're talking about here, a lot of other approaches would not support that. Right. Well, right. I mean, if you're just trying to go into an organization plop safe on there, safe gives you a great in state to target towards, but that not, may not be the right in state for everybody. And you have to have the right set of preconditions to get there. So what leading agile does is say, you know, we recognize there are a lot of good patterns in a lot of these approaches, including safe, less, dad, scrum, all of those. I mean, none of those are really like secret sauce or anything. But what we see at Leading Agile is that 
we really need to start to learn how to apply those patterns and solve the problems that are presented to us. And the way we do that um, at Leading Agile is through our system of transformation. So um, whereas, you know, safe and, and uh, less dad, they give you a great end state. They're a little bit short on, okay, how do we get from this legacy state where we got all this, all these dependencies and all this decoupling that needs to happen? How do we get to, you know, the end state that we're trying to get to? How do we get there? How do we go through the mechanics of doing that and um, getting ourselves to that point? Leading Agile provides a bit of a roadmap to do that through, um, through our base camp model um, and through our expedition model. So I want to ask, and this just popped into my head when you were going through that. Um, if I was thinking about people going through change and how some people might, you know, want to go all the way to becoming, you know, fully, completely marathon ready fit other people, that's not really where they need to get to. Do you think that this is a way of having empathy for the organization? Well, yeah. I mean, anytime you're going through a, a big organizational change like this, um, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of folks who are impacted and not all of them are going to be impacted in a way that they see as beneficial to them. Um, ultimately, you know, we're responsible for moving the organization, but the biggest service we can do for the folks on the ground that are doing the work is tell them that, Hey, you know, we're trying to get to this point, And ultimately we think your lives are going to be easier once we get there. And we think that you're going to have a, a better time at work once we get there, but here's the roadmap. Here's what we need to achieve to get to that point. And here are the steps that we can take. Uh, to move us along the path. And here's how we're going to know we get there. This is what success looks like. And this is how we think we achieve it. Yeah. This is a hypothesis. And we'll, we'll work with you. And if we find out something's not working, let's figure out how we can evolve it and work within the, the patterns and the frameworks that we know to move us in that direction and find a way that works for you. Yeah, I guess I, w- I was sort of thinking of maybe empathy is not the right word, like sensitivity for the fact that not all the parts have to go all the way different pieces of the organization. I mean, maybe there's some that are doing kind of keep the lights on work and they're fine working the way they are. And there's no point in making them do all this other stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the cost benefit has to be there and it's not all, you know, dollars and cents. I mean, some of it is, yeah, if the cost benefits not there, you recognize that the change is going to be hard um, also significantly hard. So it's not beneficial for anybody to go through that. But um, yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, that, that approach kind of gives you um, a bit of that empathy that you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Um, so can you, can you kind of walk us through like the, the highlights of a case study of what you're working on right now? Yeah. So when we're, when we started this uh, expedition that I'm on, we were, you know, we went through, um, forming the expedition and shaping the expedition and doing um, product identification and forming uh, product hypotheses around the products that we're working on and ultimately forming teams around those products. And when we start going through that, we start talking about what's the nature of those products. What do they do? Um, What's their place in the market? How often are they expected to be able to respond to changing business needs um, and what we found with this case was this is an internal system. It's not something that's, you know, ultimately going to bring business to uh, the the organization that we're working on. People aren't going to go out and pay money for um, this this product group's 
software that they produce, yeah. but it's something that's, that's needed for the business to be able to run. Um, it's something where, you know, they're, they're going to need it for the foreseeable future. It's not going away. I mean, that, that business need, that capability isn't going away, but when we start looking at it, these groups of product or this group of products is, um, pretty tightly coupled, um, but with low cohesion in the sense that, you know, they all kind of have their own needs and they, there's not really any centralized authority that, um, is driving them all in the same direction. So they're, you know, you get a lot of pulling and tugging on each other in different directions um, in an effort to ultimately get, get to the end state. Okay. So there's a phrase that I want to ask you about that you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording um, that, that kind of is tied into this. And you talked about an intermediate transitional state. So can you kind of, kind of go off on that a little bit, explain what you mean by that and how that relates to what we're talking about right now? Yeah. So, uh, what we want to get to, we, when we recognize that we have a product like this, a product group like this, that's not going to go to Basecamp 3 or beyond. There's no plans to decouple them. Um, we still need to come up with some way to uh, deal with the organizational and the architectural uh, and technological dependencies that exist within that group and the, the competing priorities that exist within that group. Um, and the way that we do that is... We, we need to find some sort of intermediate um, transitional state to get us there. And, you know, I, in an ideal case, you'd form this transitional state. If you're going to like base camp five, um, you know, theoretically this goes away when you get to base camp five and there's no more need for it. You're fully decoupled. You're operating in a lean startup model. You have um, plenty of local autonomy. There's no more need for it, but down at the base camp one and two level, and even probably up into the three and four level, there, there's still a pretty big need for this, and especially down at the lower base camps. Um, and what this, what we need to do is establish some sort of structure because we're a structure first organization. We believe that um, <clears throat> structure is what's ultimately going to drive change, not um, not going culture first or trying to just change individual behaviors. You put the structure in place and everything is going to kind of follow that. So we want to stand up a structure that can actually deal with uh, those dependencies and those risks and orchestrate them in a way that's um, going to allow the system of delivery to flow in an optimal fashion from a value perspective. So when you say structure, you're, you're referring to organizational structure, architectural structure. Like, can you, can you explain how that works? Yeah. Well, in, in this particular case, it's an organizational structure. It's not really an architectural structure. We're not building anything uh, new from a technology perspective to um, allow those, those uh, different products to play nice with each other. Okay. Um, but we are putting a group of empowered individuals together on what we call an integration team to manage um, and orchestrate the way those products play with each other so that they flow in a way that um, <clears throat> they're not colliding all the time and not tugging on each other and not getting in each other's way and allow deployments to happen with predictability and, and value to be delivered in a predictable fashion. Okay. So I, in class the other day, I had a guy who worked, um, he, he knew a lot about Agile and in the organization that he's in right now, he's one of the things that he's leading are some infrastructure teams. And he started to talk about his scrum team of architects of 30 architects. 
<laughs> it's just like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Um, That's a new one. Yeah, but so we <laughs> kind of dug into a little bit, and I'm, and I'm wondering if that might be an example of a part of the organization. That, like, you know, we want to have scrum teams. We want them producing new product. We want them doing all that great stuff. But there might be parts of the organization, maybe infrastructure, maybe some other part where from like a strict scrum or safer, whatever model you're following, it might look completely jacked up. But if it's working and they're delivering and you're able, you say orchestrate, you're able to figure out how to coordinate the way that they work with the rest of the organization. So the rest of the organization organization can be agile and produce stuff the way they need to, then who cares if they're agile or not or, or what level of agility they've achieved, right? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> what we still want to do is hold true to that idea of we want to form cross-functional teams, right? So even at this this integration level, which really is kind of a, a program level or even a portfolio level um, <clears throat> of team, we still want to form a team that is cross-functional and has everything that they need within that team to um, be able to remove um, risks and resolve dependencies and orchestrate them for the product teams underneath them to be able to deliver in as much of an uninterrupted fashion as possible. So, you know, you probably don't want to have like 30 30 architects on a team, but you probably don't have 30 architects, period. Right. But your integration (laughs) structure should probably have an, should probably have an architect on it. If you're doing anything that's changing your system architecture. Yeah. I apologize to the architects for (laughs) making fun of you. So we do want to get to cross-functional teams. We want to have a way of whatever yeah. these teams are that they can deliver. Can you yeah. comment on, uh, when you say dependencies, the project manager part of my brain goes right to uh, dependencies between tasks, but you're talking about within systems in the organization. Can you explain how risk factors into that as well? Well, uh, dependencies are a type of risk, right? So in the, at the integration structure level, what we want to do is essentially de-risk our our value delivery and do it in a way that is structured and as early as possible. So um, dependencies figure into that. If you figure every dependency has a risk component to it, how do we address that? How do we resolve it and orchestrate it? I know you and I have talked about orchestration before and, you know, it makes you think about an (laughs) orchestra. So Um, let me explain the backstory. So in leading agile, there's certain words that people use like orchestration and um, it's one of those words that that I have a sense of, but I don't use it all the time. And so the last time that Tom and I talked about it, I said, so when you say orchestration, are you talking about, you're not talking about like a conductor, but I think you said that that is sort of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you're really talking about, when you talk about orchestration, you're talking about taking a group of empowered individuals that can take a systemic view of um what's happening within their their delivery structure, right? So across the product teams, um, what's going on? Uh, what is the optimal way to make sure that these dependencies happen and make sure that flow occurs? I mean, you can, okay. you can throw, you know, yarn up on a board to track dependencies all you want, but part of the problem with that is you have uh, teams that all optimize locally, right? Yeah. They're all concerned with getting their delivery out the door, not so much concerned with, whether a dependent team next to them gets their delivery out, out the door on time. There's not right. a whole lot of incentive for them to change that. So the integration structure kind of addresses that by through orchestration by having a group of people who are seeing the whole thing. And much like a conductor in an orchestra, you know, they may point to the, 
the woodwinds and tell them, you know, you need to ramp your volume up a little bit because you're getting overpowered by the glass over here or, you know, hey, brass, you need to back off a bit. Um, the same thing can happen with this integration structure when they're starting to orchestrate and get these dependencies lined up so that they get an optimal flow of value through the system. And it's not really, you know, one team at the expense of another. It's how do we make the best trade off for optimal value flow? So these are the guys in the control tower at the airport. Yep. Okay. Yep. They are, you know, doing their air, ca- air traffic control and trying to prevent collisions and trying to anticipate things before they happen in a structured way. And with and multiple airlines who all want to use the same stuff. Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, you put Delta up in the air traffic control tower and Southwest didn't get anywhere. <laughs> yes. All right. And so I'm assuming that when you're talking about the risk, there's some risk, even in this context, we would say that's risk we're going to choose to accept. Yeah. I mean, you can't remove everything. And like in the case of the, um, the expedition I'm on right now, um, they have a significant COTS component, right? So a significant dependency on, um, a piece of software that came from another vendor that they have limited ability to actually alter and change the, the, the source code of that software. They can do, you know, certain configurations, stuff like that, but they can't actually go in and, you know, completely refactor and rewrite the source code. So they have dependencies on the organization that produces that, that cock system um, that you can't really resolve because there's no mechanism to really make, you know, another large company, prioritize something above something else they're doing. I mean, they have yeah. contracts, but those are, those are kind of limited in your ability to on a day to day basis say, okay, Hey, this is the most important thing. You need to prioritize it about everything else you're doing. Okay. Right. So when you talk about, um, about your risk, you'll have some that you can't, um, some that you can't resolve. You'll have some that you, can resolve. And the idea is that the ones that you have some control and influence over, you want to get rid of those as soon as possible or minimize them as soon as possible. And so when we start talking about that and we start introducing some structure around that at that integration team level, we can actually start scoring these risks and start to burn them down over the, co- the course of a, a release or deployment or you know, a plan of intent. And what that will show you is it will give you a very different picture than say looking at like a, a product team's development burned down where you yeah. may have, you know, 50% of your points burned down um, halfway through the sprint and look you know exactly like you're on track. But if you have 90% of the risk still remaining, your stakeholders are probably going to want to know that um, and figure out a way to deal with that and plan for what can happen uh, or what impact that might have on your ability to deliver on time. Okay. You know, it gives you a completely different way of looking at things and an additional tool to start making better business decisions as far as um, how you're going to deal with the realities of the dependencies and risks in your organization. So who are the people that are doing the orchestration or up in the, you know, the air traffic control tower? Who are the ones who, who are the ones who get to decide like, okay, this is risk that we're going to leave alone because there's not enough of a business case to be made for changing it. So it, it's somewhat of a case by case basis on an on an expedition level, but you may find people on there who have roles like release management. Uh, you may okay. have uh, you know a, an architectural representation. You may have somebody on there who has um, a governance uh, responsibility. You may have 
product design folks on there. You may have, um, you'll probably have some sort of business representation. You almost certainly should, unless you're, you know, just completely technical product that serves a product ownership role at a systemic level. Um, and then you'll probably have some SMEs that are specific to that, uh, individual, uh, product or product group. Like in, for instance, in ours, we have a, uh, pretty significant, uh, regulatory component. So there is, uh, somebody on that group who, is a SME with regards to the, the specific regulations uh, okay. that, that we have to deal with in that uh, particular product group. And then you'll generally have somebody who's, who owns the product from a, um, like a, a software technological standpoint. Sure. Okay. So, and a lot of these people, you know, especially uh, just using my uh, particular expedition as an example, they are people who, in their previous roles before they go through this transformation have been people leaders or managers or something like that. And one of the side benefits of integration structures is when you start putting these individuals on there, it gives them a direction to go in that is more of a servant leadership direction rather than just a people management direction. So it gives them a way to transform the way they may have worked before from what they're comfortable with to something that they may have an area of expertise in and you can now exploit in a servant leader manner to uh, benefit the entire system of delivery. Okay. Okay. So um, there's a question that I want to ask and I'm, and I'm not, or just, I guess, check in with you on. So if you're listening before we started the interview, Tom and I were talking about what kind of outcome we were looking for from this conversation. And I, I usually don't have one. I just like talking to people about this stuff, but I sort of do have one for this conversation. Um, and this is the thing that I want to check in with you on. I get a lot of people in my classes who, when we talk about stuff like this, they have this sense of shame or like, oh, we're not doing it right. We're not all the way this. We're not all the way that. And I would really like for people to understand that it's not about being 100% agile or going all the way. I mean, in the same way that you can't remove all your body fat, um, it's okay as long as you're still serving the organization and delivering value. Whatever's working is what's working. Is that? Do you agree with that or is that kind of off the mark in terms of leading Agile's approach? Yeah, I think, you know, leading Agile recognizes that um, when we talk about agility, we have a framework in terms of values and principles and, you know, the three things that we see that we need to make Agile work in a company and those things we aren't necessarily going to compromise on. But as far as frameworks and how you actually go about implementing and realizing those values and principles and the three things and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of flexibility there and a lot of flexibility for how you can make things work within an organization. And at the end of the day, it's, are you getting a better business outcome? Because we go back to that idea that companies are not paying for um, agile transformations yeah. <laughs> in the sense that they want to be safe or, you know, they may think they are, you know, even at the leadership levels, they may think I want to be safe or, Whatever, well, they think that when the they get to that state, then the magical things occur. Right. They want a certain benefit. Yeah. So in order to achieve that benefit, how do we get them there? And it may not always be what they think they want, you know, just like, you know, before uh, <clears throat> Steve Jobs and Apple invented the iPhone, you know, people didn't necessarily want an iPhone, but once it arrives, oh, hey, this is great. But, yeah. you know, if it gets there and it works, at the end of the day, your customer is going to be happy and your organization is going to be happy. And 
the people who are doing the work are going to be happy because they aren't in a, a, a stressful environment and they have a framework now to be able to get out of that upper left chaotic zone and start to make informed decisions around value and, and economic trade-offs and constrained systems. Yeah. And I think to, to me, another parallel here is, I mean, I've had lots of clients who've walked in the door and said, I need X. And when I start to ask them questions about why they need X, they need X because they decided that X was the answer to their problem. But as we unpack the problem, there could be 30 other ways to answer the problem that meet their needs that aren't X. Yeah. And I liken it to, you know, when somebody comes in with a user story, if a product owner comes to me with a user story that says, you know, I want this system to do something. um, Okay. Well, is that really what you want? Or um, what is the outcome you're actually after? Like I had, you know, there was a a previous engagement uh, with another company that I was on where I had a product owner uh, arguing with me over this piece of software that um, they were saying, uh, you know, very adamantly that it was designed for their employees to be able to do something for their customer. And I said, well, was it really designed to be able to do that? Or is it designed to uh, get your customers a certain outcome so that they're happy and they have what they need? And then there's an exchange of value that can occur. Yeah. I'd argue that it's not really for, you know, your employees, it's for your customers, your employees are the interaction that's allowing that exchange of value to occur. Yeah. So we need to have a fundamental shift in the way we look at this and start talking about what are we really after here? What's the benefit that we're trying to achieve? And then once we can agree on what that benefit is, we can start talking about the best way to get there. And it may not always be the way you initially thought. I think that's a really, really important point. Um, this is, I'm a, I want to end this there because that was a really good point. I think it's a good place. Are, we in, are you in a good place with this conversation? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And I know I said I was going to bring it up and I'm bringing it up anyway. I know you got other things going on in your house. You got a brand new baby. Yes, sir. So three weeks old. Welcome Asher to the world. So Tom's got to go change some diapers and take care of the poor child. Um, (laughs) If I know you've got an event, a speaking event coming up. Do you want to talk about that real quick before we adjourn? Yeah, so I'll actually be talking more about this topic, about risks and dependencies and scaled organizations and transitional states at Agile Open Florida on Friday, October 25th in Lakeland. Um, Feel free to come by, talk to me, attend the talk, check me out, ask questions. Um, It'll be a good opportunity to have a discussion on it. One thing I like about Agile Open is it's it's more of a draw on a whiteboard and, and uh, post up stickies and have a conversation rather than a lecture type format. So by all oh, means, cool. come by, poke holes in it and uh, let's, uh, let's learn from each other. Okay. So I'll make sure to include a link to that. And if, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? Like, let's say there's somebody who's dealing with exactly what we're talking about and they've got some follow-up questions. How can they get in touch with you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so feel free to look me up there and let's connect. And then you can also reach me at my Leading Agile email, which is tom.furland at leadingagile.com. Cool. And I'll put links to both these in there. Tom, thank you very much for doing this. This was a really cool conversation. Thank you, Dave. And congratulations again on, on Asher. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.